Good morning, church. We're reading in John chapter 6, verse 15. It says, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they, willing, they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Lord Jesus, we ask that as we study this word, as we look to you in the book that you've given us, that we would see Jesus high and lifted up, that you would be the hero of this story, that you would be exalted, and that in whatever state we are, it would be a state of humility and gratefulness uh, and one of receiving the good things that you have for us. So give us understanding of this by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Jesus walks on the water. We have another famous story and, and really a famous theme throughout the scripture. Uh, storms and floods, and, you know, wind and the waves. These are uh, both you know, symbols and realities. Uh, symbols of de depression and hardship and things like that. And, and of course, in the case of the story that we come to, in the case of the flood and, and other such storms, we, we see that... Um, you know, the storms were the stuff of literal hardship. Now, David, in the Psalms, he writes all over the place about being in the deep, uh, where waves and storms and floods are always the terminology of emotional and psychological and spiritual darkness. So, as we read this, this real, true, historical event, the, the spiritual lessons are already kind of there for us to pick up. It, it's low-hanging fruit here. Jesus walks over the storms. Jesus saves from the waves. Jesus is with us when we need him. Uh, he's a very present help in time of trouble. So I, I trust that as we look at this passage together, that the Holy Spirit will bring to your mind the exact applications needed, the specific comfort that you need, uh, perhaps for yourself, perhaps to share with someone else. Uh, but the Jesus that we see here, who is Lord and comfort uh, in the storm, Lord over the storm and comfort in the storm, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So let's look to him. Verse 15 gives us the context here, and it's pretty interesting. It says, therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Okay, what just happened? And if you were with us last week, you'll remember that the scene that parallels uh, really the provision of manna in the wilderness in the Old Testament is found here in John chapter 6, where Jesus provides food. He provides bread in the wilderness. 5,000 men and their families had enough bread and fish uh, to eat as much as they wanted. People haven't really changed much in the past 2,000 years. The majority will always vote for whoever can give them the most stuff. And these people had chased Jesus down on his one day off, and he taught them, he healed their sick, he fed them all dinner, and, and the people are right in saying, this guy ought to be king. Um, that's true, we worship Jesus as our king, but as, as Jesus will make very, very clear, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't really know what they're doing. They want Jesus to be king so that they can get bread, 
Righteousness has nothing to do with it. A kingdom of God has nothing to do with it. Worship has nothing to do with it. Just bread. And you can see their selfishness on display here because it says that they were about to take him, take Jesus, by force and make him king. That's not the way you treat Jesus. That's not the way you treat God. It's not even the way that you treat a king. You know, if you're saying, God, I know you can give me what I want, so I'm going to stand here and I'm going to make you do it. No. That's Jesus responds to this crowd in the same way that he responds to the crowd in Nazareth that wanted to push him off a cliff. He leaves. In both cases, there were people exerting or trying, attempting to exert their own selfish, proud wills over the all-powerful God himself, and God immediately leaves the room, which you, you'll agree, I think, is the most merciful thing he can do to such a crowd. James, the Apostle James, says that there's a wrong way to pray. He says, you have not because you ask not. But you ask and do not have because you ask amiss that you might spend it on your pleasures. And in this way, when these people are asking, whether with words or in the motives of their heart, they're asking for Jesus to be king. They don't have Jesus as their king because they're asking it amiss. They're asking for Jesus to be king just so that they can have a resource, a useful ally who can give them what their flesh wants. And God will never submit to that kind of request. If your own pleasure is the force of your prayers and your plan in your arrogance is to force Jesus into a position where he serves you, um, you need to be prepared for some disappointment. And the Bible seems to say that there are few things that will repel Christ faster than that kind of attitude. Jesus sees this attitude here and he just leaves. You know, whether it's people trying to kill him or people trying to to chain him to a throne, so to speak. He, he just leaves. Jesus is not a political candidate. He does not submit to the opinions and whims of the masses. Even when it is a crowd, perhaps, uh, you know, with, with some of these same people who shout crucify him later, Jesus makes it very clear, I lay down my life, I can pick it up again. He is not king because you made him king. He's king because he's king. So Jesus here, even though he knows that he is the king of the Jews and of the world and of the universe, he also knew that it was not his time to come into the, the, world, come into the world in glory. Not yet. And that should remind you of this first miracle, right? Water to wine. Mary brings him the problem, and he, he says, My time is not yet come. Same thing here. We'll see the same words again spoken to his brothers at the beginning of chapter 7. You know, there's an opportunity to be king, but his time, his opportunity, had not yet come. So he bows out. And if you'll, if you'll uh, remember the context, this is actually what Jesus had tried to do earlier, at the beginning of the day. If you cross-reference this whole chapter to Mark chapter 6, you'll see that the disciples had just come back from a short-term mission trip. Jesus had just received news that his cousin John the Baptist had died. And so he had, he had just said to his men, Come aside by yourselves. To, uh, by yourself to a deserted place and rest a while. And we love that verse. I love that verse. It's like the antidote to burnout, right? And I've seen this verse, I've heard this verse taught at pastor's conferences. Uh, I've seen this as a theme for retreats. And it's always about the need to draw away 
from the business, from the, the busyness, turn off your phone and just go be alone with Jesus. Sigh. And, and that's great. All of that's good. And, but the hard part comes when you see that when Jesus and his disciples had, had tried to rest, that's when a bunch of people showed up. And their day off turned into a day of ministry instead, a day of service, a day of a lot of work. Now, they're, they're all, the, the crowd at this point, they're all content and well-fed, and so they're going to start a political uprising. Now, if Jesus needed a break at the beginning of the chapter, he definitely needs one now. Uh, the disciples, too, consider the twelve. They're, they're, there's twelve of them. They had passed out food to 5,000 families. I don't know how many you have to, uh, I don't know how many of you have experienced waiting tables, but I'm sure you would agree that waiting on 416 tables by yourself would be a bit much, which is about what it works out to, what the disciples would have had to do. If they needed a break before, they really needed a break now. And, well, they're not going to get it. Um, Jesus does get some time by himself. It says he departed again by the mountain by himself alone. And in Matthew chapter 14, it tells the same story from another perspective. And it says that he went up to the mountain to pray. Jesus is a great model for us in this. Uh, he knows the value of solitude. While each of us, all of us, are made for community, we are also called, you know, we're called to community. We are also in need of silence and solitude. It's a, it's a both and equation. Community is feasting. Solitude is fasting. And we do both. Community is being awake. Solitude is is uh, resting, sleeping, however you want to divide it. It's clear in scripture that we, were, we need both, we're created for both. And you'll probably, you as an individual, will probably gravitate more towards one and less towards the other. But you are called to both community and solitude. And this isn't the topic of the sermon today. This is a parenthetical statement. It's a sidebar, okay? But it's, it's free, I won't charge you for it. It's, it's, it's time to share it anyway. Spend time alone with God. And spend time in the presence of God, people, God's people before God. You know, for time alone with God, that means regularly every day for a shorter time. This means occasionally, a few times a year maybe, or less for a longer time. You see Jesus model both of these systems. He rose every day before the sun was up. And then at other times, he would go by himself for a longer period of time. He'd go camping or he'd go spend the night in prayer. That's not something you do every day, but it's not something you do never either. So take your prayer retreat and then return. And, and when you return, be sure that your spiritual growth, your discipleship is taking place in the company of and in the plain view of others. You need it both ways. Grow in the knowledge of God with others and by yourself. End of parenthetical break. Verse 16 says, Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. So after dinner, Jesus departs. It's probably not too long after this that evening comes. The feeding of the 5,000, according to the Gospel of Luke, it happened with the evening already approaching. Uh, both Matthew and Mark point out that Jesus made his disciples uh, excuse me, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. Uh, Mark 6.45 says he compelled his disciples or constrained his disciples to get into the boat. So he forced them to leave. Okay, that was, that was all Jesus. It, it, it's his idea to send them away. I need to be alone right now. You need to leave. Now, 
why do you suppose he sent them away? I mean, of course, there's the idea maybe he just want, he needed the time alone and he needed the break. But did he need to send the disciples all the way across the, the lake for that? Probably not. Well, here's a suggestion of why the strong language in Mark 6.45 is compelled and constrained, why he forced the disciples into the boat. Um, consider or remember the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Uh, Satan tempted Jesus with a kingdom of this world. And Jesus resisted. That was, a, that was a, a hard pass, a final no. But now, with this uh, crowd of 5,000 well-fed uh, people, a kingdom is being offered or even forced on them again. And the question is, would the disciples be able to resist this temptation as well as Jesus had? Now, it seems to me that Jesus is answering the request of the Our Father, lead us not into temptation. You know, I don't know that the disciples would have thought the crowd's idea to make Jesus the king would have been so bad after all. They could have been convinced that this was a good idea. But Jesus knew better, and he does what he can to protect his men from that temptation. And so he compels them to get in the boat, he sends them on their way, he goes up onto the mountain himself and prays. In the end of this verse in John, it says, And Jesus had not come to them. Jesus is absent. Now, this is the second time Jesus will protect his disciples in a storm. The first time he was with them, asleep in the boat, and a storm came, and they feared for their lives. That's in Matthew chapter 8. Now he's going to protect them again, but from a distance. Now, hopefully you see that he's growing. He's growing their faith. He's not holding their hand the whole time. He's preparing them for the truth that he will teach them after his resurrection, which is, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christ was with them, protecting them, whether he was asleep in the bottom of the boat or on the mountain praying on the shore. But without Jesus' physical presence with them, the disciples set off. And they hit a storm. Verse 19, uh, verse, or verse 18 says, Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat. And they were afraid. Interesting. So, uh, the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. The Sea of Galilee isn't a sea at all. It's a lake. Uh, but it's a very moody lake. Uh, I'll read you a passage from one commentator I read this week. He said, The Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level in a cup-like depression among the hills. When the sun sets, the air cools, and as the cooler air from the west rushes down over the hillside, the resultant wind churns the lake. Since the disciples were rowing towards Capernaum, they were heading into the wind. Consequently, they made little progress. They're heading into a storm. Uh, and like I said, the, the, the metaphor of the storm is, is uh, you know, nearly played out. It's, it's very well established in our language. When you say you're in a storm and it's a sunny day, everyone knows what you're really talking about. You know, you can reach back in your memory right now and look at the last storm you've been through. Uh, or maybe you recognize that you're in one now. We all know what storms are like, and this, this metaphor is firmly established in our language. But for the disciples, this storm is not a metaphor. It, it's a storm. They're getting wet, they're cold, they're tired. And as I said before, this is the second storm that these disciples have been through together. 
The second time, they are in need of divine intervention. And the first storm was violent, it was dangerous, and it was terrifying. The storm where Jesus was asleep in the boat, and they woke him up in, in what sounds like kind of a scolding tone, do you want us to die? And, and then he gets up and he tells the storm to be quiet, peace be still. And, and they're impressed, to say the least. But before that, they were afraid for their life. Now this is a different storm. And nowhere in this passage does it say that they were afraid of the storm. It says they were afraid of Jesus, and we'll get to that in a second. But, but, as to the, uh, but it doesn't talk about the kind of fear from the storm. It does tell us about their progress. It was evening when they left, already dark or, or pretty close to it. And it was the fourth watch of the night when Jesus came to them. We know this from Matthew chapter 14, verse 25, and Mark chapter 6, verse 48. They left it dark, and Jesus came to them at the fourth watch. The night was divided into four quarters, four watches. You had from 6 to 9, you had from 9 to 12, you had 12 to 3, and then the fourth watch was from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., so the disciples are in the, in the wee hours of the morning, from three, four, five o'clock in the morning maybe, and they have been straining against the storm uh, for quite a while. They're not covering a lot of ground. Uh, it says when they had rode three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat. Okay, let's do some more math. Three or four miles. It's Passover season. Uh, we knew that from the beginning of the chapter. That's springtime. So it's getting dark around eight o'clock, let's say. The fourth watch begins at 3 a.m. They have been rowing or sailing or whatever, probably a lot of rowing, they, uh, for somewhere in the neighborhood of seven hours. And they have only made it halfway across their route. Matthew says that they were halfway across the lake. They were in the middle of the lake when Jesus came to them, which is only about three or four miles. So a half a mile an hour, maybe. It would have been faster to walk around the North Shore of Galilee. And let's remember the condition that these disciples are in. They were in need of a day off at least a day ago. They showed up exhausted to John chapter 6. Think, think of the emotional and the psychological and the physical roller coaster. Two, two days ago, they were seeing that they had authority over demons for the first time. They were seeing healing that they were praying for. They were, uh, and that they were performing with God's power. They were so impressed and they were just very thrilled about this. Then they row across the lake for their staff retreat. Okay, from probably Capernaum across. Now, three or four miles is halfway. They went six to eight miles. So they, they rowed or sailed six or eight miles across the lake. Then, instead of getting the day off, um, they have to feed everyone with the emotional uh, kind of background music playing of the news they just heard that John the Baptist is dead. Okay, at least two of Jesus' disciples, probably more, had been John's disciples first. This is a friend of theirs. This is someone uh, that they knew. This is someone that some of them were related to. Uh, this would have been a personal blow. And at the same time as they're beginning to see the power of God in their own ministries, it's finally hitting home the dangers that exist for those who follow the Lord. Jesus, after all, was teaching much more radical things than John. And they killed John. They had to be thinking, who's next? Then they're mobbed, 5,000 family together, families together. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. That's stressful. And then each disciple passes out, you know, food to 400 or whatever people. And if that wasn't enough, for, sorry, 400 or whatever, 
tables of people, groups of people. If that wasn't enough, the people are now forming into a semi-violent political party. And when Jesus sees how that's going, he puts the disciples in a boat and says, you've got to go, start paddling, back that way, back in the west. And they're like, it's night, the wind comes from the west at night. We know this scene. He says, nope, you've got to go that way. And so they row for about seven hours into the wind in the dark. There are different kinds of storms. You know, there's the storm that, that makes you fear for your life. The sudden, unexpected storm that shocks you into prayer. An emergency making you pray, Lord, save us. And, and then there's the other kind of storm that just makes you despair because you're, you're just not getting anywhere. It's not an emergency anymore. It's too old for that. You've been here before. And you're fighting. And you're fighting. And you're fighting. And there's just no end in sight. Some storms are long storms, the ones that just threaten to wear you down. The marathon of storms, except with a marathon, you know that after 26 miles, there is a finish line around the corner. Now, we, we don't read that the disciples were afraid. They might have been. But we can be absolutely sure that they were exhausted. That they were physically, emotionally psychologically, spiritually exhausted, and completely frustrated. Now, when I say they were frustrated, consider who they were frustrated with. Why are they in the boat in the first place? Why are they crossing the lake at night? Who sent them there? It's Jesus. Jesus told them to head out. Jesus compelled them to go. Now, this is a bit of speculation, but I don't think it would be too hard to imagine that in addition to being frustrated with the conditions of the lake, and the wind, and the cold, and their fellow sailors, because you know how it goes. When one thing is frustrating, everyone around you suddenly becomes stupid, right? So they're all fighting with each other, probably. In addition to all of that, it's not hard to imagine that the disciples were also beginning to be frustrated with their Lord. After all, he's the one that put them there. And... <laughs> Man, we, we really don't like to admit that. We don't like to admit that God not only allows us to go through a storm, but he'll send you there. He'll send you there. And, and I can just hear some of you being like, hey, last week, didn't you mention Psalm 23? You know, like he makes me lie down in green pastures. What about the shepherd? Like, can't we just opt into that kind of relationship with the Lord? Well, the rest of the shepherd's psalm, the rest of Psalm 23 goes, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. The green pastures and the still waters are one place that he leads you. Yeah. And the valley of the shadow of death is another place he leads you. It's another place he meets you. You know, we rejoice in the promise, thou art with me, but we can't really fully embrace that truth, the full beauty of that truth, unless we're willing to realize that he was in control and present before you went into the storm, that he knew about the storm, and that he was even, he even had his hand in sending you into the storm. And he's still with you. Now, when Jesus asked Philip about how he was going to feed the 5,000 earlier in the chapter, it says in verse 6, But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus knew what he would do. But he sent the test anyway. And, and in both the test of feeding the 5,000 and now the test of fighting through the storm, Jesus is the hero. <laughs> Jesus shows himself to be most glorified. You know, there are a lot of 
platitudes and chintzy sayings that we like to use around the storms of life, and I won't weary you with any more of them, but when we say things or we hear things that, that might give us a little bit of explanation to the, the why God kind of questions, and that's not a bad question, uh, as long as you're willing to ask it directly to the Lord, and if you're willing to be in His presence long enough for Him to actually address the question. But the why God question is answered by Jesus in another place. You know, when, when the man is born blind, and the, uh, the man born blind is in the story, and the disciples ask, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus says, that's not how it works. This happens so that the works of God should be revealed in him. Why did the disciples have to endure this? Why do you have to endure whatever you have to endure? Why are we led into storms? What Was it to teach them a lesson? Maybe so, sure, maybe. Uh, if so, we have no indication that they learned it. <laughs> But maybe. So why did God send his people through this storm? It was very uncomfortable. That wasn't nice, Lord Jesus. Why did he send them through? I, I can't give all the reasons, but I can give this one. You know, just like I can't say why God has sent you through the trials in your life that you've been through or are in now. I, I don't know. I can't tell you all the reasons, but I know one of the reasons. I know one. It's so that the works of God should be revealed. It's so that Jesus can receive glory the way Jesus wants to receive glory. In this story, there's one hero, and it's Jesus. And many of the struggles that he leads us through may be used to remind us and others that there's no hero other than Jesus. Now, John 6, uh, 19 already told us that the hero has made his grand entrance. Jesus is making his appearance. And the disciples see Jesus here for the first time in this storm, but this was not the first time Jesus saw them. In Mark chapter 6, 48, the parallel passage, it says, Then he saw them straining at rowing. So they weren't sailing. I forgot about that. For the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. He saw them. They were never out of his vision. They, they were never past his awareness. Jesus knew what was happening to them the whole time. He knew. He saw. He still knows. He still sees. And we strain at the oars. But he sees. And the wind and the waves come, and he knows. And we fear no evil, because we, we know the truth that we can pray, for thou art with me. And Jesus comes to visit them at the halfway point in their journey, totally exhausted. Don't be so surprised when Jesus waits until you're halfway through the struggle to come. But it seems that these men are not ready for supernatural assistance, uh, because when they see Jesus, they're terrified. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. Now, Mark adds an interesting detail here um, that no one really knows how to take. Uh, in Mark, it says, He came by them walking on the sea and would have passed them by, as if Jesus wasn't going to them at all. He was just going for a stroll on the water. Uh, perhaps he was walking past them, meaning that you know, intending that the mere sight of him would give them courage. But that's not how it works in this case. They're terrified. And, uh, you know, they're, they're terrified of Jesus, which is not the way fear of the Lord is supposed to go. They think they've seen a ghost. They're terrified. Why? Because people don't walk on water. That's why. Jesus is behaving very strangely for a, nor for a normal person. And 
Aren't you glad that Jesus behaves strangely for a normal person? I, I know I am. But the disciples are afraid, in part, because God is acting outside of their expectations. And now, had they been expecting a miracle and asking for a miracle, would they have been less surprised? Probably not. I don't think so. I'm surprised every time God gives me anything that I ask for, honestly. Uh, but perhaps they would have been less afraid, because it was not the will of Jesus to make them terrified. Look at verse 20. It says, But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. This is all you should want to hear. Right here, our ears, as God's people, should be tuned to this frequency to hear him say this. We should be aware and ready and eager to hear the Lord say, I'm here. I'm with you. Now, we, we ought to expect this. We ought to be ready for this promising statement to calm our souls because Jesus has already said to each of us, I am with you always. There's never a time when this statement in John 6, verse 20 shouldn't be yours to take. Jesus can say to you now, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, sometimes when Jesus says, it is I, ooh, that's important. It's a really big theological statement, like saying, I am that I am. You know, that's what God says to Moses at the burning bush. And people disagree as to whether this time is one of those times. Um, now, walking on water and everything else he does certainly leads us to believe in his divinity. But whether or not his emphasis here is, I am, in all capital letters, or if he's just saying, it's me. Either way, it is a theological statement. God is close. That's a theological statement. God is near. And either way, he's comforting his children. You know, the word of God is both grace and truth. The theological statements of Jesus are words of comfort to his children. Jesus comes in a storm and he says, I'm here. And perhaps if they had faith to hear it, he also said, I am that I am. And at this point, it's very evident that Jesus was operating in supernatural power. And that's important. But the other important thing was simply his presence. Jesus says, I'm here. You don't have to be afraid if I'm close to you and I am close to you. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Now, fear has got to be one of the most misunderstood topics in the Christian faith. And it really can be a confusing thing. You don't have to read the Bible very long to see that there are, are two terms or, or two themes that are repeated over and over and over in the Scripture, both Old and New Testaments. And one is the phrase, fear not. You see this all over the place. Angels say it all the time. Prophets say it. The Father says it. Jesus says it. You know, there, there's a bit of misinformation out there. Uh, you'll, you'll hear people say, oh, it says, fear not, 365 times in the Bible, one for every day. Uh, I don't know why people make stuff up like that. It's not like we can't count. That's just not true. Um, but it, it does show up a lot. It's there hundreds of times. Fear not, fear not, fear not. And, and then you've, and, you know, you've got verses in the New Testament like perfect love casts out fear. So we know that there is a bad kind of fear, and Jesus addresses that kind of destructive fear now in our passage. He tells the disciples, don't be afraid, it's me. But the Bible is even more saturated with the concept of the fear of the Lord in both Old and New Testaments. We read, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Uh, by fear of the Lord, one turns from evil. Psalm 25 says that the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. 
Psalm 112, verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. David prays, Psalm 86, verse 11. I love Psalm 86. It's one of my favorites. Unite my heart to fear your name. Psalm 34, verse 9, we're commanded, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. So, there's obviously a good fear, too. And I wish I could make it easier and say, well, you see, actually in Hebrew or Greek or maybe Aramaic, there's two different words and one means the bad kind and one means the good kind. That's, I, that would be easy, but that's not the way it is. It's just one word. And it just means fear. So there's a bad fear that involves torment to which Jesus says, fear not. And then there's a good fear that is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge and leads one to turn from evil and allows for the friendship of the Lord. Now one way, this won't explain fully the fear of the Lord, but one way to distinguish at least these two fears from one another is, is by knowing that there's one kind of fear that makes you run and hide, run away from God and hide. It makes you want to run from the Lord. Adam and Eve in the garden, they hide. You know, probably these disciples on the boat, they're like, ghost, paddle faster, paddle faster, paddle faster. And then there's the fear of the Lord that we're commanded to, the fear of the Lord that we're encouraged in. And this is a fear of the Lord that makes us want to run to the Lord. Peter responds in the fear of the Lord after one of the miracles, one of the fishing miracles. He swims out to shore and he bows down before the Lord. And he says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Now, he's, he's operating in the fear of the Lord, but it leads him to the feet of Jesus, not away from him. You know, yes, there's a big, an awesome, amazing God in our presence, and he can walk on water. But I would be crazy to go anywhere else. I have to go to him. Now, what John does not include in his version of this story is that this is the time, this is the storm, when Peter gets out of the boat. All the disciples were afraid. All of them, Peter included. From Peter to Judas, all of them were afraid. But Peter's fear led him to pursue the Lord, even if that meant taking his life in his own hand and heading straight towards destruction, he still goes towards the Lord, rather than trying to run from the Lord. All of the disciples were afraid, but one of them is afraid enough, or afraid in the right way. He's afraid enough to walk on water. There is a holy fear of the Lord that we are called to. And this is what it looks like. Why don't you just go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 14, actually, so we can get this, the parallel story, and then we'll close, close up with this. Matthew chapter 14. It's the same story, just from a different perspective, written by someone else who was in the boat that night. Matthew writes, But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he saw on the water, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid, and began to sink, beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. 
Now, if there is an application for us at the end of all of this, it is to voice this same confession. Truly, Jesus, you are the Son of God. And if there's something we need to see in this passage, it's that there are storms we are called to, storms that we are sent to, and they will be scary. But as we walk in the fear of the Lord, the proper fear of the Lord, in obedience, even in the obedience of suffering, even the obedience that, that takes our life in our hands and, and submits ourselves, subjects ourselves to extreme risk, that correct response is still to go to the one who is the Son of God. If the water's above your head, then you say, Lord, save me. That's appropriate. But because of his nearness, because of his care, we can pray those words in faith, knowing that he is both mighty to save and willing to save. In this passage, we see the care of the Lord, the presence of the Lord, the power of the Lord, all directed at caring for exhausted, frustrated, weak people. That will always be applicable because you'll always be like the disciples in the boat. We will always be finding ourselves in the place where our great need is encountered with his supernatural care. And upon this meeting, we ought to do nothing but worship him and confess, truly, you are the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the one who walks on water, the one who calms the storm, uh, the one who um, demands obedience, even from the wind and the waves, you see us and you know what needs to be done. Uh, you see and you know what you're going to do. And we, we worship you, God. We worship you for your kindness and your care and your power and your glory. And we trust you. We know that you see where we are and, and you have a plan and you are mighty to save. Uh, so we as a church, we pray with each other. Lord, save us. Um, we listen to your voice together when you say, it is I, do not be afraid. You're here, you're with us. You're in our midst. And we praise you, Lord, that we praise you that your rod and your staff, they comfort us even in the valley of the shadow of death. And we praise you for your promise that you are with us always, even to the end of the age. Amen.